Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker. This first season is an exploration of race and the news media, and today we're taking a look at diversity in the newsroom and the difference it makes in reporting. We're so glad today to be joined by two guests whose experience in the newsroom range from the local to the national. Welcome to Brevet Carey, the news director at ABC 11 WTVD-TV in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Her nearly 20-year career has included time as an executive producer at NBC and CBS affiliates, as well as lead producer at CNN and HLN in Atlanta, covering news events such as the Ebola outbreak, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, and the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. During her time at WXIA-TV, NBC's affiliate in Atlanta, she also managed the Voices of Equality franchise, which includes content focused on underrepresented voices within the community. Welcome, Brevet. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is someone I know very well, my brother, Adrian Walker. But he's not just my brother. He's also an associate editor and columnist at the Boston Globe. He has been a part of the newsroom of the Globe for over 30 years now, and also was an integral part of the Pulitzer finalist team on a series of articles about race in the Boston area in 2017. Welcome to you, Brother Adrian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for being here. So today we wanted to spend some time talking about newsrooms and representation in the newsrooms for people of color, because we realize that it's a part of the stories that get told in newsrooms, whether in newspapers or on television and radio, that's so much of it from time to time to, um, to non-journalists feels stereotypical in some ways. And maybe some of that is changing. But since you all have had, both have had long careers, I'd like to begin by asking, um, as you've had this long and extensive careers in newsrooms, in terms of diversity or ethnic makeup, Adrian, I'll ask you first in the newsroom, what changes have you seen um, as it relates to diversity in the last 20 to 30 years? It's changed enormously. I mean, I walked into my first newsroom at the Miami News in 1986, and here are some of the things that were different. First of all, the newsroom was much wider than a newsroom you would be in today. And also, we didn't even talk about it. I mean, it wasn't even really an issue. We didn't talk about representation. We didn't talk about ethnicity hardly at all. And one of the things, you know, I was reporting in my hometown in a paper I'd read all my life, but I never really understood until I was inside of it, you know, how we covered it. I never understood until I became a reporter that virtually all the stories about people of color involve crime or sports, you know, that all the Black male reporters were police reporters, you know. I mean, the stereotypes ran very deep. There was very little representation and very little concern about it. I mean, and God, I mean, I'm not being a Pollyanna here. God knows we have a huge amount of work to do, but we've come a long way in the 30 years or whatever it is that I've been doing this. Hmm. And Brevet, how would you describe the changes that you've seen in, in a couple of decades in television? I would say similar to Adrian. Normally, my I started out as a producer, so... I was usually the only black producer in the producer pod, as we would call it. So whenever there were stories that I connected to, 
either they were they may have been negative or you know if it's something you want to speak up about I had to find my voice in speaking up in a newsroom where I didn't have a, a lot of people who looked like me and didn't want to appear that I was taking a side or you know was biased or sometimes you would suppress your feelings but now I would say due to George Floyd and what we've seen as I feel like that I know we'll probably get into that later just as a catalyst for this this movement a renewed movement I would call it I think people have much more um, freedom there's more awareness and pitching certain types of stories that are related to underrepresented communities whether it's dealing with black or brown or different races I feel like people have they feel like they can speak up now mm -hmm. and they there's a there's I would say maybe people are seeking to understand, seeking to understand like, you know, what are some of the challenges with different groups of people and in different communities? So I believe they're a bit more open to having those stories. And when it comes to pitching stories as journalists, journalists of all races and gender, I think feel more comfortable pitching those stories. Mm. Right, and that's translated into a much broader range of stories mm -hmm. about communities of color than we were doing 20 years ago. Right which is one of the best things about it. I'm sure that 20 years ago still, most of the stories were related to crime or right. poverty, right? So you had this, it created this, um, it always, it seemed to create this um, dialogue that most black people in whichever community it seemed to me, wherever you live, that they were poor and in places that were already, always extremely crime ridden. Mm -hmm. So I guess one of the things I'm wondering now is what sort of began to reframe some of those conversations? I would say from my experience, having diverse viewpoints, mm. diverse perspectives at the table in those editorial meetings. And again, like I said, it's it was finding my own voice and, and being comfortable speaking up to say, okay, we don't have to report every crime story. What's the impact? Someone can get shot on Main Street, not diminishing that, but what, what is what is the impact when we report crime after crime after crime after crime? How relevant is it? Now, if we're if we're seeing a pattern, that's one thing. Sure. So maybe there's a bigger picture there. If there's a certain crime trend in one area, but just for a one-off, no, there's other stories that's going to be more impactful to your community. So I, I think for for me and my experience. I thrived off being in a newsroom with diverse viewpoints and diversity of thought. No matter. And by the same token, having more voices in those conversations mm -hmm. also gave provided space for people to say, "Hey, wait a minute! Crime isn't the only thing people of color do." And why are we you doing know? this? What what makes this story important? Why is this a story of value? Why right. is this yeah. newsworthy? There are some people um, in in a couple of the conversations we've had that have advanced the notion that if particularly for broadcast media, um, crime stories are like the easiest things to go out and tell, right? It's just low hanging fruit every day. I say low hanging fruit all the time. So I love that you said that. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of my terms, low hanging fruit. Why are we going to do what's easy? Even right. can do that. <laughs> So I think even if you consider, and let me ask, well, let, let me frame it a different way. If you think about now how much more competition there is, um, 
does that also help to drive um, some of the different kinds of stories now that we are telling in our news business? For sure, because of the because of what's happening in our communities now and the climate of what's happening. So I think you have to. At ABC 11, we thrive off of being connected to our community. So we produce and create high impact content. That is what we have termed content that is relative, memorable, and provides context. So we have less emphasis on some of the spot news that you were talking about. If it, if it bleeds, it leads. Again, what is the impact? So we want to be able to capture the essence of what our communities are feeling right now. And yeah, remember, to... context is really important, you know, because part of it is also, you know, if, even if you're talking about poverty, for example, people want to know why are the right. why are people who are poor poor? What is that all about? You know, hmm. we did, when we did our seven part series on race in Boston a few years ago, we had a number in the first day series that said that the annual net worth of a white family in Boston was two hundred forty seven thousand five hundred dollars. The annual net worth of a black family was $8. Eight? Eight. Wow. Proof, proof story, it came from a Federal Reserve, uh, the Federal Reserve had done the study on it. And, uh, you know, people want to know what that's all about, right? That I mean, that became like the thing, that's the thing everybody remembers from that project. So, you know, people don't just want like the same old stuff, you know, the same old shooting story, you know. So-and-so got shot in the Bronx. People want context. They want to know what it's all about. They want us to explain their communities to them. They want to know the reason. Give me the why. Yeah, right. They want to, they want to be empowered. They want to feel engaged. They want to feel connected. Exactly. Now you're, you're, you're seeing more people, um, more people of color, like running for office and having a much more public view, right? Public exposure, I guess. So does that also help um, news organizations decide that they need to go in a different direction? Because we also need to spotlight some of these people and help people to understand that there's a whole, you know, variety of people of color in the world, right? It's not just, I mean, beyond just the people in wherever, you know, that you've envisioned in your mind all these years, but as you're beginning to tell these stories, so I guess what leads it? Is it the fact that as people see more of themselves, like you all in newsrooms and in other places, they think, you know, we can step out and do some things too, or is it more exciting to do the news now because you also have greater representation in your communities? Does that make sense? I think so. I think it's a little bit of both. Yes. I, I have seen and I've heard from people in this newsroom and other journalist friends that it's great to have the representation. When I was producing and in my career, I only had one black news director. And of course I connected with other other news directors, but it was that was a first for me, the only one, my only experience, right? And so there were certain stories that maybe we thought were newsworthy and he was able to probably explain it a little bit better than I could at the time, but I learned a lot from him. And especially now that I'm in that, now I'm in this role. So I feel like it's a little bit of, you're, you're seeing, you know, in politics, you're seeing more representation. You're seeing athletes going to HBCUs, which is increasing the awareness about the legacies of HBCUs instead of other institutions, but also internally, with news, I just think there's 
because of the stories from the last year and the buildup of that, people feel like they can pitch these types of stories. They will feel heard, respected, and, and they're welcome to pitch it. Because before, some of my journalist friends would tell me if there was a story dealing with a certain community or with a certain race, they didn't feel comfortable. It was usually pushed aside. But now, you know, they can they can be, you know, strong in their convictions and pitch it with confidence. And I think that goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, you can't say enough about what representation has meant in this context, right? I mean, I was hired by the first black metro editor of the globe, Greg Moore. And uh, you know, the, the fights we used to have with people over stories involving race were crazy. One of the all-time biggest stories involving race in Boston was school desegregation in 1974. Oh, yeah. yes. And you know, we were still do busing stories, the legacy of busing, anniversaries would come around and that kind of thing. And the fights you would have with white people in the newsroom, who thought they were perfectly well-meaning, by the way, about what you could and couldn't say and what it was all about, were just maddening, you know? They always insisted it had nothing to do with race. It was always about class. It was some judge from Wellesley imposing this on the poor, put upon people of South Boston. And, you know, Greg and I would be sitting in the meeting going, you guys are crazy. And by the way, go look at the pictures from the first day of school in 1974, in which you will see white people throwing rocks in school buses full of black children. You know, that's what really happened. Okay. And uh, it, it is so much easier. Those conversations are completely different now than they were 20 or 25 or 30 years ago. Oh, I can and it's about it. having more people of color in newsrooms, but also more people in positions of authority. Of authority, yeah. I and truth in, in advertising, I can remember clearly that when that so for Adrian for for our dad, um, when he was working on his uh, doctorate degree, um, he served in the uh, School of Desegregation at the University of Miami, and there um, and what they did was they helped create plans. Um, to desegregate schools, school systems all over the country. And I remember he he worked on the Boston plan for a number of years. And he always talked about how that was one of the most frightening and racist places he had ever seen. It was one of the most challenging because the people were so dead set against it and trying to, you know, really do, you know, get that project completed and, and see them begin. And when you saw the pictures of what happened, when they started in in, uh, in Boston was really chilling, really, really chilling. So I, I understand that. But um, back to your um, newsroom story for a moment, one of the things like, okay, so both of you are sort of in executive positions now in management positions. So um, from your vantage point, um, not just for, for African-Americans, but for other people of color. Like, so recently we've been focused quite a bit on the AAPI community, right? Because of all of the, um, all of the horrible things that have been happening in their community. Well, actually the things that have probably been happening for a while, but that are now coming to light, right? As we, as we've talked about, you know, all these just terrible stereotypes following the coronavirus. So how does this also help you all or inform your um, decisions about creating space for people of other ethnicities and having their voices also be a part of your news organizations? We have a belong team internally and that's similar to our DEI team. And so our belong team again, where everyone belongs, no matter who you are. Internally, we have subcommittees, people, content, and culture. 
And it's divided in those three categories because we want to be able to speak truth to power, but also be held accountable on all fronts, whether it's how someone identifies, whether it's a story, um, AAPI, or um, dealing with, you know, death by suicide, just making sure that the, the framing is correct, right? Yes. And we check each other, they hold us accountable. And I believe no matter the race, again, there is a space for everyone because it's opened up to a colleague to say, hey, maybe you should write it this way. This term is actually used in this sense. When we have our hiring panel, we invite members of our belong team to interview potential candidates for positions internally as well. Because again, we want it to be a collaborative space where everyone feels they have a voice and they're heard and they're touching not only the product, but they have a say in the people who we're bringing into the newsroom as well. And so I think that's a, you know, a, a, an inclusive approach to not just the content, but also to the culture that we're trying to build internally. Internally. At the globe, our version of this is called the Inclusion Council. And it does some of the same things. It kind of monitors, right. you know, what does the homepage look like? What does the front page look like? Mm -hmm. Who are we writing stories about? Who are we bringing in to interview for jobs? How are our numbers moving? All of that stuff. Right. So the whole range of issues that affect inclusion. So is there some um, intentionality then around what your demographics look like in your newsrooms now? For sure. I, I believe so. I mean, when it comes to producers, editors, digital producers, our news management staff, we have more work to do in, in news management. Gotcha. And what would you say, Adrian? I don't know our numbers off the top of my head, although nobody would say there were, we wish they were. Exactly. We can always right. And, you know, they were kind of going up for a while and it sort of stalled for reasons that aren't 100% clear to me three or four years ago. But so, we, so we've definitely got a lot of work to do. Although management has gotten more diverse. What has not gotten as much more diverse as I want is the reporting range. See, it would be opposite for us. Is it? It's definitely opposite for us, yep. One of the things when we were talking to a couple of professors in one of our uh, past episodes um, was that there is a challenge right now of getting, of two, there are a couple of challenges. One is getting enough minority students to actually um, become journalism students that they had seen a rise of that at one point, but it, there was certainly a decline and that's here in North Carolina. So, um, and they are really looking at that. I, I think they're working with the uh, Knight Foundation in terms of trying to, um, you know, really um, go out and, and encourage students to come into the journalism program. But then they also talked about the fact that you've got so many different ways in which you can deliver news today. So certainly this is a generation, the Generation Z, I think it is, Generation Z, who um, have so many more options and they really get to figure out about, um, how does their work life um, um, balance off their social life, right? So some of them, they find themselves doing all kinds of things across the internet and all of the, so many different social platforms. So if I think about newspapers, Adrian, I know that a few years ago we saw, or I guess probably now it's been a couple of decades, right? That we began to see all these major mergers between newspapers. And I know like the McClatchy people own just tons of newspapers across the country and all of that. Um, is that partially in response to, um, I know it was, it, it, it was, a, it was, um, 
it was spoken of as the declining readership, but ultimately, and it's always a business decision, but does that also give you an opportunity to um, utilize more reporters across the country, if that makes sense, so that everybody doesn't have to be sitting in the same newsroom? I guess it does, although, you know, part of what's, what's happened, though, is that the industry has just hammered jobs, you know, mm. so, I mean, there's less of everything. There are, there are chains, there are a couple of chains like McClatchy and Clipium still that have, you know, a lot of papers, but those papers have far fewer reporters in them. So mm. that, that's become the issue. Gotcha. And then how does that reflect in the uh, media world, in the broadcast media, Brevet? So for, mm -hmm. for ABC, the own television group, there are eight stations, including Raleigh, Durham, Fayetteville. So it's New York, LA, Chicago, Houston, and Fresno in Philadelphia. So we're able to leverage opportunities and partner with those other stations. And of course the network partner with other stations as far sure. as content. So they're in you know, other states and we share content across all platforms. And so this definitely um, increases the, the bandwidth that we have to be able to tell different stories. One of the interesting things I think for broadcast right now is just seeing how many platforms are just coming on every day, right? So you can watch ABC News all day long on some platform, or you can watch the, you know, um, Good Morning America on some other platform all day long and all of those things. But do they diminish your ability to, to stay focused on a local level about what's happening in our communities? I think it, you can broaden the story. So no one is going to be able to tell our stories better than we can because we're, we're planted in the community. So we have a pulse check on the community and what's happening and what our audience wants to see. So, you know, we're here. You can broaden the story if you use a story from, let's say, California or Chicago, if there are similar trends or, you know, just a similar topic. And let's say, for example, the gas shortage. So we knew that North Carolina was at the top of the list when that happened with the Colonial Pipeline. So we were leading for the wrong reason, okay? <laughs> we're leading for the wrong reason. We're winning that one. But then if you if you compared our numbers, let's say to Pennsylvania, where we have a station in Philadelphia, it wasn't as bad, but they were able to use our live shots, just sure. like Andrew Brown Jr. Oh, yes. in Elizabeth City. So we covered that extensively for a week and a half when it, I think, I believe, I believe it happened April 21st. So our crews were there. And so the other stations relied on our coverage to tell the stories and their markets. Okay. That's awesome. So it was a way to get, you know, it was a national story. It was local, but it was yes, a national story. It was a national like, story. Just like George Floyd. Born here, there's a local connection, but also it is a national story. So they're not, they're, they can't tell the story like we can, but right. we can lean on them and they can lean on us to provide the bigger picture when it comes to content. So here's a question that we wanted to ask you both about content, because one of the things we were talking about recently was that sometimes you will see a story uh, become a lead story and it can remain a lead story for several days. And, um, and you have this question after a while of, 
how important is the story really, right? And so one of the things that we were talking about was that if you have a celebrity generally involved in a story, and so then for some reason, um, you know, it becomes just this, you know, big story because everybody knows this person. And you're now on day three of telling the story because to the news media, this is really what the people wanna hear. How do you make decisions based on whether so what what takes the lead thinking about what the readers and viewers want to watch or what really is important in terms of journalistic content there are several factors <laughs> you know I always say what you know what happened yesterday doesn't necessarily mean whatever we did yesterday may not apply to today because it can gosh there's whether it's timely you know proximity the impact, of course, as I mentioned before, high impact content, we are dedicated to producing that type of content. And again, it's memorable, it has to be memorable, wide relevance, and have the context. So you add the perspective, who are the people who, who can speak to it, the personal narrative, right? Are we walking through, walking the viewer through solutions? Are we highlighting a problem, giving them solutions, breaking it down for them, helping to keep them prepared? You know, is it, you got to look at resources and examine that for the day. So there, it, it runs the gamut, but of course, everything is based on the journalistic principles and what it means to the community. We're helping to inform, but who is really impacted? Two people or 20 people? Mm, okay, that's fair. Or 200, or 200 people or 2,000 people. <laughs> so, And I'll throw out one more factor, which is, you know, how long are... Thing, are you still finding out new things? Right. How long is a story developing? I mean, the question we'll ask ourselves in a news meeting in day three or four of a story is, you know, is there anything left to do here? Is there anything left to say? Who haven't we heard from? You know, one of the harder decisions to make is when is the story run its course? Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. What have we, we done here? Right. Like you said, I buried the lead on that one, Adrian, but yes, it has to be, it has to be new. I'm here to help. It has to be new, fresh, and urgent. Come on, you know? So that's news. And there, comes a, there comes a day when it's not. There comes right. a day when it's like, yeah, we're done about this murder, you know, or, you know, mm -hmm. nothing's, nothing's going to happen now until it goes on trial. Yeah. And so then you can let it go. Yeah. Or if it's a story from a, you know, from a broadcast perspective, we're talking about the spot news, we will cover it, but it's not going to be the lead because therefore, let's say there's a, a shooting on Main Street. We shoot it as a VO, give it 20 seconds in a newscast, but later on we find that it's connected to a bigger crime trend or that was an officials or you know some city leader's son or something like that. Yeah. So therefore we would have covered it, but we still have that video in case it warrants a bigger picture story later. So it's not that we ignore it, it's just we are very deliberate in the presence and how much time we devote to it in our newscast. So as we begin to um, wrap up, because I know that we've been talking quite a while and I'm just enjoying this conversation, but I'm sure you all have other things you need to do today. But let me ask this. So I know that we know that there's still plenty of work to do. There's still plenty of work to do as it, as it relates to who's telling the story, and there's still plenty of work to do in terms of what stories are being told. So as you look down, you, you have crystal balls, so pretend you do. <laughs> look into your crystal ball. And if you look down um, the road, let's say five years from now, 
how much better are we going to be at telling stories about communities of color and about um, and about the people who are there? I would say we have to be honest. Like you said, there's more work to do. And we've seen in several news outlets and organizations that are creating race and culture divisions. And I think that's extremely important because it can speak to all communities of color and what's happening within those communities and what they need to, to do to thrive. And again, re reporting, basically amplifying the voices of underrepresented communities. I think we still have to keep pushing forward. We need more representation in the newsrooms. We need that support and diversity of thought and allies. It needs to be a holistic approach because it's not just people who look like us. You, you know, you also learn from those who have different opinions who sure. may not know your world. So you don't want to exclude those voices or exclude those, those individuals either. But again, it's just working towards that common goal and, 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 and acknowledging we have work to do. And we're not going to get there tomorrow, but we got to keep pushing forward and being honest about that. I agree with all of that, but I'll also say that I've been encouraged by what I've seen over the last year or so. You know, mm -hmm. last summer, you know, during the George Floyd protests oh. and everything that came after it, I mean, it was exhausting to cover, but it was so, it was so energizing in another way to see how central stories of race and class became and to see how newsrooms responded to them. You know, there's a real appetite for telling these stories. There's an audience for these stories and there's a real desire that has not always been there in the time I've been in this business to, be, to try to get these stories right. So I think that we're moving in the right direction with more momentum than I've ever seen before. Great. And so you think now that post George Floyd and, the, and all that happened last summer, that we'll continue going this way, that we will continue to, um, to tell these stories with greater balance and all of that? I believe so. Yeah, I do. I, I definitely believe so. Again, as Adrian mentioned, it's, it's just the momentum. Well, I think we have to keep building on. That gives us a uh, that gives us a lot of reason to hope. It really, really does. I think you know, in every industry, you're finding that people are are doing their work, and so um, I'm really encouraged that you know by the work that you all are doing, and 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 in the other newsrooms, I'm sure across the country, it's very it's very hopeful, and um, it helps us even as people of faith, um, as we go out into communities and try to you know connect with uh, with people who feel like they have been sidelined for so long to begin to have faith that their stories are that they're being heard and that they're being heard in some very positive ways and being acknowledged for the work that they have done and continue to do. So that's really great. Yeah, the, the task now is to keep it going. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you so very much. Thank you, Adrian. Nice to know that I could call you and get you on the phone. <laughs> and thank you so much for that. Welcome back to North Carolina. <laughs> and we look forward to maybe we'll get to see you in person one of these days. I hope so. I hope so too. We'll have to make a plan of that. And to you, our audience, we hope that you will join us again for another episode of Roundtables Around Race.